Hello and welcome to Data Futurology, a podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We learn this directly from top industry leaders out there today. My name is Felipe Flores, and I hope that you are having a wonderful week. Thank you very much for listening. I wanted to do a very quick shout out to our sponsors, Datasource Services will help you find your next job. You'll hear more about them at the end of the episode. And the other one is the University of New South Wales with their Masters of Data Science program that is 100% online. Stick around to the end to hear more. And thank you all for your support through your messages, your feedback and ratings. Thank you for sharing the episode. And uh, for the ones that can, thank you for your support on Patreon. That really helps us to continue producing the show. Excellent. So without any further ado, I'll let you know that today we speak with Warwick Graco. He is a Senior Director of Operational Analytics at the Australian Taxation Office. Warwick is a super, super impressive guy. He spent a few years working in the ATO, the Taxation Office. Before that, he worked in health as well. He's done, we talk about in the episode as well, he's done a ton of research, as in like I found papers from, he wrote in the 90s, being the super humble guy that he is, he really uh, played it down during the interview, but it's super, super impressive, the work that he's done in the Australian government in different areas and his research as well. Several years ago, or many years ago, in a professional setting and thought that he was really excellent back then. So I had a lot of fun uh, getting to hear and ask him about his origin story, his background, his thoughts on different interesting topics and how he got to where he is. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Do let me know what you think. If you like it or if you got value from it, please share it with others. Thanks a lot. And here's a discussion with Warwick Grego. Hi, it is Felipe. And today I'm speaking with Warwick Grego. How are you doing, mate? Pretty good. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure. Thank you. At the beginning, I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in the data space? What was it that drew you in? It's a long story, but I'll give you a sort of a summary. I was fortunate to be joined the first uh, government agency at the federal level, but it was also true right across government because no one else at the time had anything uh, resembling what today we call data science unit. And this was going back to the early 1990s when unit was set up in what is now called Medicare Australia. It was um, initiated by a fellow by the name of Dr. John Neros, who was a medical practitioner. And John worked as a, what we call a band two, which is a, a general manager in charge of what was called then professional review division, which was a part of Medicare Australia that basically oversaw and still does today, even though it may be called by a different name, the professional practice standards of health professionals, particularly those in medicine, pharmacy, optometry, physiotherapy and dentistry, the ones that just come immediately to mind and by professional standards, I'm talking about where they are complying with uh, government legislation in the use of um, government funded Medicare program and also the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. And John had read before this unit was established an article in a journal, and I have no idea what journal it was at the time, where he saw this thing called artificial neural networks, and it sort of aroused his, his interest. And as a consequence of um, 
of his interest being aroused. He asked around who was working in the space with that type of technology. And you've got to remember back then this was all new and very much an unknown field of both research and practice. Again, without getting off on too much of a tangent, he came across the name of a professor called Archung Choi, who was Professor of Electrical Engineering at the University of Queensland. And Archung had been involved in this technology prior or previously in his career. And as a result of um, discovering or coming across Archung, he uh, approached him to inquire about what neural nets could do. And again, I'll cut a long story short, he um, identified some people in the space who were doing research or were using this sort of technology. And one of those persons was the name of Simon Hawkins, who was just recently uh, graduated with a PhD in, in computer science, but he also had a background in neuropsychology as well. And Simon was uh, appointed to start up this unit, and he then advertised for certain positions. And I just happened to be working in the same geographic location as where what was called the equivalent of Medicare Australia was located. I looked at this advertisement, which I came across purely by accident rather than deliberately <laughs> looking for it. I saw that I matched the selection requirements and again to cut a long story short I was selected for this unit which consisted of about eight people and we were the first to start using this technology to identify what's called um, fraud and abuse within the Medicare scheme and also the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. That was really uh, my introduction to this field, not having had any prior experience, but just happened to have certain skills that matched what was required to do this sort of work. Exactly. That is so interesting. And what yeah. were the skills that you developed in order to get that first job how, and how did you develop them? Well, I had uh, worked in various research positions in my career uh, prior to that. I was in the armed forces and uh, the army, to be specifically, and I'd been identified early in my career as having this sort of aptitude for research. So I, I won't go through what I did because it'd take too long to explain, but basically I just sort of rotated through these research positions and I was using various multivariate statistical techniques to do the research. And uh, over the years, I had built up sort of that expertise and this was gained prior to any academic courses being available to do um, data science. You know, this was at least two decades before data science courses became established. The people who were recruited were all those who either had a computer science background or a statistical background. And we sort of learned on the job through doing projects, you know, uh, how to apply machine learning techniques. And we sort of um, learned from experience rather than formal education how to use these methods. And we started off using very advanced multivariate statistical methods that resembled neural nets. One of those was multivariate adaptive regression splines, which was a technique developed by Professor Jerry Friedman at Stanford University. Basically, uh, this is a, a non-linear way of feeding a surface to data to classify cases, you know, as being, say, um, high risk, low risk, if you just want a simple example. We had the software to do that. And then gradually over time, we acquired packages, enabled you to use various um, multi 
spirit and machine learning methods, we build up our expertise by applying those packages. That was over a 10-year period. It wasn't done in a short space of time. It was done progressively. We acquired more staff who were, had the expertise that we required and enabled us to develop the skills that led then to development of solutions that enable us to identify uh, what you could say was fraud and abuse in those two programs that I previously identified and also enabled me to work with many what we called domain experts, people who had uh, deep knowledge of their particular field of practice, such as, say, um, ophthalmology, psychiatry, general practice, dermatology. They're just ones I can pluck out of the air. There were others. So we developed uh, solutions that could identify misuse and abuse of, say, services within those different types of practice sort of specialties. Yes. And what did your work look like at that time? What software did you use? What type of machine learning algorithms were you using? And how were you, were you going and taking them into production? How did your work look like? Well, initially we used purpose-built software that we acquired from the author that wrote the package. Um, with the multivariate adaptive regression splines, we obtained the original software developed by Professor Jerry Friedman. We had to mm -hmm. customize it to our requirements because it just didn't work in a way that we wanted it to work when we uh, first looked at it. So it took some spade work to make changes to it. And we had some very skilled, highly skilled programmers who helped us to make make those uh, changes and then once we got it working uh, that's what we used initially and then over time we acquired software from SAS being one example. They were, well, I've forgotten what year they developed um, their enterprise minor package but um, that wasn't until after 2000 we started using that. Uh -huh. We were using another package that I'm just trying to remember the name of that was developed by a fellow uh, from the UK which was later acquired by um, IBM and uh, uh -huh. that was a um, desktop type package which enabled us to use different types of tools like decision trees, regression type models. I can't remember for sure if it had any neural net type applications, but by the late middle to late 90s, uh, neural net sort of had a very high profile initially, but then they sort of faded from you know, in the sense that they um, were not as popular as decision tree packages because neural nets uh, had the problem that they were very much black box type applications and were very hard to explain to users how they worked, why they produced certain outcomes, whereas we were getting, I won't say fully transparent, but much better, more easily explained results using decision trees. And decision trees can be difficult to decipher if you've got very complex ones and fairly involved business rules, but we are able to, um, I'll use the word dumb down some of the decision, sorry, the, the business rules used so that we were able to make it more digestible, more understandable by technically sophisticated people, but people that didn't quite understand how statistical and machine learning sort of techniques work. And having tools that are transparent has always been a, a fairly uh, pressing business requirement in, um, in the data science field. I'm, I know there may be some acceptance of opaque type tools. By opaque, I mean ones which you can't readily explain how they work, why they are producing certain results. But I, I remember I was at a uh, conference just recently. It wasn't a uh, conference where there was a presentation. It was more of a conference where people were discussing issues. And a lawyer was there who was a very astute and quite a smart lawyer, you know, he had a very sharp brain and he said that provided people had confidence in what opaque type of solutions produced, then that too 
can be a plus, but to be honest, I haven't seen a great deal of um, acceptance of opaque solutions over the years. And even today, I would argue that you still have a battle on your hands to sell uh, opaque sort of uh, solutions to business people because um, their eyes tend to glaze over and they tend to become quite confused when you try and explain, you know, that we've got this result because of these reasons when they can't readily relate it to what they understand in the, in the way in what they know and have seen with the issues that they address. That's still a challenge. I think it's going to be some time before we will be able to gain wide acceptance of opaque solutions. That's just my personal view based on many years' experience. Very true. And do you see any distinctions in applications or use cases where sometimes people are, as in business users, are more open to accepting these opaque solutions versus the times that they want something more transparent and that they can understand and explain? Probably depends on the individual you're talking to because I've always found with people who've got a um, a fairly strong technical background with some sort of quantitative training, by that I mean they've done statistics or they've done some other type of discipline like say financial mathematics, econometrics, biometrics, um, these are just ones I'm plucking out of the air, or uh-huh. even pure mathematics, engineering, physics. They are probably more easily persuaded than those who don't have that type of background. There are some exceptions to that. I was very fortunate when I was working in the Medicare Australia, as it's called now, that I had, I had a boss who replaced the one that I previously identified, that is Dr. John Neros. He was a fellow who replaced him, was a lawyer, and lawyers are, are the most skeptical and um, people and uh, takes a lot to persuade them. He initially was that sort of stance, had that attitude. Over time, he uh, just became more accepting of what we're doing and what we were showing him to a point where he became a convert and he was quite prepared to take results on face value without having to um, go into a long explanation trying to justify what was produced. He was very much an exception to the rule. By that, I mean he was one that uh, we were successful with, but for that one success, we had many others that we were never able to win over. And what do you think made his case a success? It's a good question. I think because he was working closely with us, so not necessarily looking over the shoulder, he never did that, but he was someone who I had to go into his office on a regular basis. I had to explain to him what we had found, identify, um, you know, we were talking about real cases and real cases that he could relate to because he, he himself could see what was going on with those cases. And because of that sort of hands-on exposure that he was getting, the fact he could see what we were producing, what explanations we were providing and some of it was in plain English, it wasn't always in technical speak. He just became more confident in what he was seeing and hearing and more prepared to take it at face value rather than requiring a, a sort of a, a detailed sort of justification. And I'll just go off on a tangent here, but it's a very relevant one. But I was recently in a conference in Canada on something totally unrelated to what we're discussing now, but listening to a keynote from a speaker who worked in the Canadian government and recently had retired and she was explaining how the current Canadian government under Justin Trudeau operates and I won't go into what she explained but but she did make the point that this government is very evidence-based, evidence-driven 
I found that quite surprising because um, I said to her after her presentation, there's two types of politicians, those who are belief-driven, and this also applies to many managers, and by belief-driven, yeah. they are searching for evidence that reinforce what they what beliefs they already hold. And if I use an example that's commonly, uh, not commonly used, but I mean, people are very familiar with this climate change. There are both politicians and other people out there who are very convinced that climate change is not real. and. Uh -huh basically search for any information or statements or whatever, what some people, even those with strong scientific qualifications, will make that reinforce those deeply held beliefs that they hold, whereas you get others who are very much, may have deep-seated um, doubt about climate change, but are still prepared to be driven by what the evidence is showing. I guess the reason I'm highlighting this is that I have found too that there are people who will cherry-pick whatever you produce because... Uh supports whatever political agenda they've got and are pursuing, whereas others prepared to be persuaded by the facts, even though they may not be comfortable with those facts. You know, the old saying, you've got to know your enemy, in the sense of um, if you get up against someone who's very belief-driven, then you know you've probably got a very difficult road to hoe to convince them, whereas if someone's facts-driven, then you may, well, you're more than likely to have greater success with them than you would with the other type that will cling to their strongly held beliefs. Yes, indeed. And during your career, have you had other success stories like that, that lawyer boss that you had in terms of getting somebody to become more of a convert? Uh, yes, and uh, I've had some spectacular failures, and uh, some of that was probably my fault as much as other people's fault, in the sense I should have been more alert to what was going on, but some of it was due to some of the difficulties we were facing in trying to uh, get outcomes that we could use to persuade people. And by that, I mean bogged down for a long time trying to get results that we knew were worthwhile to take higher. But what I um, have found, and it's a lesson I've learned many times, not once, but repeatedly, is that unless you've got the support of those who you are working for, your chances of success are probably fairly slim because um, I'm going back historically here. I don't want to make this appear as if it's the case now because times have changed, but went back to a certain point in time and say between, say, 1990, the year 2010, just using sort of an arbitrary sort of time period, but it's close to the mark, is that when analytics was, as it was called as well, besides data science, was mm -hmm. in its early stages, there were organisations which, and parts of organisations that the you will use it, but decreeing it is one thing, getting people to agree to it and accept it is another. And if you force these things on people, then sometimes you can get very strong pushback. And what I found was that uh, people who themselves saw themselves as experts in their particular domain, and they quite were experts, I'm not disputing that, felt that they were on top of their portfolio and that they didn't need some smart Alex coming from externally to tell them how to do their job. And when you came up against those types, the pushback was quite strong. Mm. And no matter what results you came up with, there was found reasons why it wasn't, they weren't acceptable. And we weren't in that position to be able to dispute what they were saying because, A, we didn't have their domain knowledge. And secondly, they were pulling the strings. Anyhow, you know, they had the power, whereas we didn't. Unless you get that willingness to learn on both sides in the sense that they're prepared to learn from us and we're prepared to learn from them, which is what you need if you're going to get a successful outcome, then yes, you're going to come to grief, basically. That was an experience that I had more than once in that time frame I've just identified. 
some of those attitudes still exist, but they're becoming less and less these days because since about 2010, 2012, there's been a shift in attitudes and that's been brought on by the fact that data science analytics has shifted from the back room to the front room. That was brought on by the explosion in the amount of data being generated in the world, which started roughly uh, around the year 2000 and since that, that, that upward or that significant upward trend started to materialize. By that, I mean um, up until then, data was still ex- was growing at a fairly exponential rate, but around about the year 2000, that exponential rate started to get some momentum and the size of the increase started to become more noticeable. As a result of that, that was one driver in people starting to pay attention to what those doing analytics and data science could deliver. The other, of course, was that there were success stories starting to become public where various organizations were using these sorts of capabilities, achieving um, fairly tangible business outcomes like you know, increases in profits, lower costs, etc. And that was filtering through to senior management. And as a consequence of those sorts of um, trends, you know, senior managers realized uh, even if they didn't understand it, they had to get on board. And that's what's been happening since. And that trend is, um, you know, I can speak here in the federal government, you know, uh, as I said, I was in the first government agency department that had that capability. And that's going back over 25 years ago. Since then, particularly in the last, say, as I said, 2010, 2012 period, there's been a significant growth in the number of departments and agencies which are now investing in this capability. That's certainly evident here when the, you know, the Australian public service, you know, federal government public service, that is, there's been a significant growth in departments and agencies that are now using analytics slash data science. Yes. Exactly. And I wanted to ask you, in the times where you found that you had good support, as you said, from the people you were working for, the times that you had good support and the times that you had bad support or not so good support, what are some of the the markers that differentiate the two that can help people differentiate where they stand today in their workplaces or in their teams? What do you see as some of the, the differences between having good support and bad support? How does that manifest? One success story uh, I had, you know, which was, was a good one, was with our general people we employed as in our organization at the time who were medical practitioners. They are all what's called general practitioners, as distinct from specialists. When we initially started with them, we were getting a lot of um, pushback and skepticism from them. And what was proved to be a chipping away process, but it was um, one that worked quite successfully, was instead of um, providing results in a sense like saying this is an issue we've come across we think you should look more closely with that was we did the reverse thing and that is we started asking them what they wanted rather than us telling them what we had found and when we started Uh asking them what they wanted that really led to a significant change in attitude because they started articulating their needs and as to what they wanted to see in front of them. And what we then did was started to produce the type of outputs that they wanted to see. We didn't get it right the first time and we didn't get it right at the say the 10th time, but each time we did it, we kept incrementally improving what it was they wanted to see. They also started telling us what they thought would work, what they wanted to identify, what we would call non-compliance. And they came up with some very good suggestions about what would identify non-compliance based on their very deep and extensive experience they had themselves as practitioners. And by picking their brains, by encouraging them to come up with constructive suggestions like that, we 
built that into what they wanted to see. To cut a long story short, we went from this one-page report, and you could call it a business intelligence report if you want to give it a label. Over time, it grew to three pages, and this, the, in this three pages were very detailed and very, um, what do you call it, was in small print rather than large print data. We were incorporating but again it was based on what they wanted to see we weren't saying they should what they wanted to see we were just merely obeying what they directed that they the way they wanted it formatted how much they wanted to see in one page so we were following carefully and in a very um what do you call it observant way what they wanted and so what was in, in that report reflected their requirements but we incorporated everything they wanted we also um did an exercise where we checked to see what attributes that they had provided and what we were using as well which were stock standard ones that they didn't dispute. In other words, they were quite happy to use them. And we found that some of the ones, uh, or one in particular that one of them had uh, recommended was the most discriminatory attribute of all the ones we were using. It was very um, formative attribute in the sense it was telling us which GPs were likely to be misusing and abusing Medicare as distinct mm. from those who were using it in the manner deemed appropriate. And it was that engagement, you know, talking to them, getting them involved, getting them to contribute that was was what won them over. They were very, um, what do you call it, pleased with uh, what we were producing then because, again, it reflected what they wanted in terms of uh, meeting their business requirements. So it was that engagement that really won them over. And it was a learning experience, you know, in the sense that it was a progressive one. It all happened at once. It happened over time. That is so interesting. You were almost co-creating the analysis and the, and the solution by bringing in their ideas and mixing that with your expertise. So you had that two-way sharing of knowledge and two-way understanding in order to provide that. That's right. And to be honest, if you can ga- engage those, even if they have um, their, uh, what do you call it, total skeptics and are quite ferociously opposed to what you're doing, and you mm-hmm. do get that occasionally, if you can get them to um, engage them and tell them, well, I'm not here to tell you what to do, but you're here to tell me what you want and you can provide what they want, then that can certainly um, make a huge difference in selling what, what it is that you're doing. Yes. And how much domain expertise or domain knowledge do you think the, the data scientist or the analytical person needs at the beginning of that process in order to essentially provide the service? I was at a conference in um, Brussels many years ago. I'm going back about, say, 10 years ago. The reason I mentioned this because one highly experienced data scientist was there. He said, made a statement which really resonated with me. He said, and this is going back 10 years ago, and it's quite some quite happened yet, but I think we are are gradually heading in this direction. But the point he made was that you can no longer just be a data scientist. You have to work in a particular area and build up the main knowledge of that area that you work in, not to the point that you're going to be able to match it with the the experts, but you have sufficient familiarity to understand what they're talking about. You have sufficient understanding of the nuances that go on in that domain. Again, not necessarily to the same level as an expert expert. You're not a novice. You're not a, what do you call it, someone who's coming in who's had no prior experience. You, you've got to, you can talk to them in their language. You can speak about the issues that they admittedly have better knowledge than you, but you're speaking to them not quite as an equal, but getting close to being an equal. I have to agree with that data scientist. I can't remember his name, but I know he was like a chief data scientist of a company in the USA at the time, and he's someone who obviously had been in this space for quite a few years. I have to agree with him. So when I'm getting at there is if you are 
working in health, I really believe you you need to work in that area for probably five or six years to get up that sufficient domain knowledge to pick up on the jargon, pick up on the peculiarities that go on and different specialisations in within medicine because uh, each um, specialty has hyper specialties and by that I mean they're specialists mm-hmm. within specialties. And I worked a lot with an ophthalmologist who was a professor at one of our major universities here in Australia and um, working with him, I, I learned a lot about ophthalmology, not from the point of view that I'm, I'm an expert in ophthalmology, but from the point of view of understanding what ophthalmologists do and what they contribute and what different hyperspecialists do within ophthalmology. And it's an experience that's still with me today and since I haven't forgotten what I learned from that experience. And that was over about, about a three to four year period working with that professor who, as I said, had, was highly skilled in ophthalmology. But he was also um, surprisingly had on his own initiative did a statistics course and hmm. what's this is a true story I'm not making any of this up his knowledge of statistics was better than most statisticians knowledge of statistics huh. he had taken to it like a duck to water and he was very very good at applying it and I can tell looking at someone within minutes whether or not how good they are at statistics because it's been in that space for many decades and I put him out there towards the very top he was someone that just I was just stunned how quickly he was able to master it and use it in a way that was very professional and very competent but he was unusual I mean you wouldn't see that normally but coming back to what I said before he was someone that learned what we were doing but you know I learned a lot from him about ophthalmology and the nuances in it I honestly believe to be a successful data scientist to Day, you've got to have that domain knowledge. If you don't have it, you really are starting with a significant handicap. Yes, that's right. And when you've gone into new areas of applying data science into new areas, what are some of the ways that you use to get up to speed? Or how do you think some of the listeners can get up to speed in the knowledge of an area when they either go into it with their work or they're interested in going into a specific direction? Yeah, it's a good question. Now, all the learning I did was on the job. It wasn't by attending um, courses, you know, formal education or training. Mm-hmm. And be honest, I don't think you can learn. You can learn the, um, what do you call it, the basics through formal education and training, but to really learn the, what counts, it is learning on the job most of the time. Learning, and by that I mean, I don't mean just uh, any type of learning. I mean, it's learning where you're working with people who've got, as I said, they are experts. I define an expert as someone who's got very deep knowledge of a very narrow area and their knowledge is extensive in the sense that they've been in that space a long time and they know, um, even though you never cease learning, but their knowledge is so good that even when they come across problems that previously haven't been encountered, uh, they're very good at coming up with solutions to um, solve that problem far quicker than those who probably don't have that same deep knowledge. And it's working with those people, that's where you really do, you know, it's an apprenticeship. That's where you do get to know things fairly quickly. And uh, and you also learn it by asking questions of those experts. A lot of them are prepared to sit down and explain their reasoning, their thinking, why they came to certain conclusions. And also, what do you call it? A patient too, you know, if you don't quite grasp what it is they're saying they're prepared to, um, you know, if they don't, if they can't get it across the first time, they'll come back and try another way to get it across later in at a later point in time. And it's an apprenticeship type model, I guess, what I'm advocating. But I'm not suggesting for a minute that is the only only way of doing it. But it's certainly something I've seen from what my own experience, which spans many years. 
But it's also got to be willingness on the part of the other side to A, want to participate, A, want to provide that knowledge that they possess. Sometimes you'll run into people who are very jealous of their prerogative, very protective of their patch, and keep all intruders out, regardless who you are. They've... um, they're just, what do you call it, not prepared to um, share what they know. And there's not much you can do when you come across the type of individual. Uh, they're a very hard nut to crack unless you happen to be someone who just happens to be able to define a chink in their armor, which some people do. That's right. And over the years, you've published a lot of papers, actually. Not as many as others. I, I have never been academically inclined like some, you know, with the publish or perish syndrome of academics mm-hmm. where, you know, you've got to suck as many papers as you can out of a piece of research to keep up your publication track record. I've sort of been, I have been very research focused, but I've been fairly spasmodic in publishing papers. I sort of um, might do one here, one there, but it's not something I see as a priority to do. I will do it if I really do come across something I think is quite interesting and should be shared, but I certainly uh, haven't made that up priority in a sense I see that as my highest uh, thing that I must do. Uh, depends on the issue. There are certain things I do, um, what do you call it, pursue with some vigor, but it's a patchy record I've got rather than a, one that's consistent and, uh, what do you call it, um, regular. That's a very humble description. I'm able to find papers from the mid-1990s all, all the way to 2018. So I think that is very impressive. And I wanted to ask you about your process. How do you pick the topics to publish and how do you do that work? How do you get collaborators in? And could you tell us a little bit more about your process to publish? Yeah, it's probably not the stock standard one you'll hear. When I first started out in the field, I was very much in the supervised learning area, which I had to be because that was all we focused on at the time. And of course, there was no focus at all on uh, the what I call the discovery side. But going back to, I'll just say the mid-90s, because I can't remember the exact year, but I was doing a, a master's degree at the time by research, but it got converted to a PhD. And I started that because to go back and give you context so you know where I'm coming from and not going to get confused by what I'm describing. When I was working in defense, I was working in um, decision support area. I spent quite a few years in that space and I'd become very interested in how people problem solve, drew decisions, came to conclusions, you know, made judgment, that sort of thing. And so I sort of started focusing on that as a subject to study and I spent a year doing a sort of a research sort of like, it was more of a dissertation rather than a thesis on how people do the things I just described. And I was sort of intended going further with that. But when I joined Medicare Australia, I um, and started to get involved in uh, the machine learning side. I'll tell you what happened because this is a true story and I'm not making this up. But one day I had a fellow working for me at the time who was a very gifted data analyst and he was very bright, very smart, very sharp. And back in those days, believe it or not, we were working in with mainframes and I don't know if you remember ever the paper that mainframes used when it came to printing, but they're very broad sheets, not the A4 size sheets that you see today. And yes. they were joined in the sense that the pages were, um, what do you call it, um, weren't separate. They were all, uh, what do you call it, if you collapse the, oh, all yes. the printed pages, they made a pile. And what he'd done was he'd looked at all the profiles of GPs and identified, we call them features today, but there were these sort of measures we were using back then to say of their practice and whether or not they were in acceptable limits or they were pushing the boundaries and maybe over-servicing their clients or patients, sorry, or in other ways abusing the system to inflate their income. And what he'd done was he'd put asterisks above all these practitioners that had outlying scores. He then, using 
showed me the results. And what he'd done was he'd sorted them and sorting them from those that had many sort of outlying scores down to those that had only one outlying score. And it was like with the um, cartoons where they do the drawings and then they put, say, 10 of them together and they then flick through the pages and you can see as you uh, look at it visually that there's a movement occurring, like someone's moving their hand or whatever. Yeah, yes, um, it's like an animation watching from page to page. Page to page, but they're flicking the pages quickly so you see the animation. What I saw when I uh, looked at this, and this is an, an epiphany, was he was so, showing patterns that were repeating themselves. And you get, say, 20 practitioners, they all had the same pattern of high scores, and then there'll be... Uh, say 30 more, they had another pattern and the numbers varied. And it was like a cartoonist showing these animated pages and you could just see it, just hit you like a bullet between the eyes. You couldn't miss it if you tried. And I said, Struth, this is interesting. What's going on here? And again, this is a true story. I um, went to bed that night and I woke up this morning realizing how would I identify those patterns with practitioners that we hadn't done that exercise with. I'd sort of went to bed and then I thought of a solution to doing that. I had someone write up the code for me to do it and we then applied it. We identified all these patterns and then I realized we were identifying different types of practitioners in within the data. And again, I'm going to cut a long story short here because it would take a long time to explain it. What I was identifying, and it wasn't me who initiated this idea, it was this other fellow working for me, was he was identifying different classes of practitioners amongst GPs based on these high-scoring attributes. They weren't necessarily different classes of GPs that were up to mischief. They just happened to be had different practice patterns. And when we uh, applied this technique and a few other steps were taken, which I won't go into because I've always found it very difficult to explain this process, even when I talk to people who are quite sophisticated, was that we were able to identify from the data GPs that would had different types of practices. And it was simply because we were counting the frequency at which these different attributes were occurring in the data with different practitioners. And to give you examples of where I'm coming from, and which was subsequently proved by someone else using another technique, which I'll explain to you shortly, was mm-hmm. that we're identifying sports medicine practitioners, people who specialize in sports injury, and they yes. had certain defining attributes. We were identifying what we call female practitioners, and female practitioners are obviously women, but they treat other women. They don't treat any male patients as a rule, and they oh. treat women for women-type issues, which mm-hmm. I won't go into because some of them you could probably work out without much difficulty, and women go to them because these women are able to relate to their particular circumstances and understand fully what it is that's causing them concern from a medical point of view and able to prescribe both diagnostic-type and treatment-type procedures to manage their particular medical circumstances. And we're identifying what we call high-volume 24-hour clinic-type practitioners. That's where you go to a 24-hour clinic. You know, it's open seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And what they do is they just basically have a factory production line in going where you come in and you may want a a medical certificate to take a day off work. So they they give you a medical certificate to take the day off work. You may come in because you cut your finger, so they'll stitch your finger. But it's usually a single problem requiring a fairly obvious solution. But these clinics make huge amounts of money because the amount of patients or the number of patients they turn over is huge because they were operating 24 
24-7. They're just doing one service per patient, basically. Mm. Uh, whereas in a normal practice, you may have two or three services occurring per patient rather than a single service, depending on what the issues are. So we were able to identify them. We were able to found, you know, going through other examples, that there's not one or a few types of specialists within the GP world. There's multiple specialists within the GP world. And what's going on in the GP world, and it's been going on now for a number of decades, even a lot of people aren't aware of it unless you happen to be in the health type industry, is that GPs are specialising. And they're doing it because either they like that particular type of work that they do or because of their clientele. And by that, the type of patient they're treating. And the day of the generalist in medicine is numbered even, and by that I mean the jack of all trades, because even GPs, as I just described, they're just deciding, I no longer want to be a jack of all. I want to be able to treat patients, certain patients with certain type of issues, and that's going to be my um, field of practice. And that is occurring more and more as we go forward. And that's simply because medicine is becoming so technically complex, so deep, so fast, which new solutions, new cures are being found and the pace at which it is occurring is really, is you know, it's occurring at a cracking pace rather than a slow pace. And if you take cancer as an example, and that's just one I'm plucking out of the air, new solutions, new treatments, new possible cures occurring, you know, almost there's so many a day being discovered now and it's moving with such pace that even the experts, the oncologists who specialise in this area, they just can't keep up. It's just happening too quickly. And in one sense, that is going to benefit patients because a possible cure to a person's cancer now, the chance of finding one is increasing all the time. But the problem is because the specialists can't keep up, you've got to know who to go to to find the cure that's going to be right for you. There is a cure, uh, sorry, solution in place for that, and it's called precision medicine. It's in its infancy. That's where they use big data, basically, to develop records of every patient that's treated in terms of what symptoms they present with what illnesses they have, and then what treatments they're given, whether it be pharmaceutical or otherwise surgical or some other procedure, and then identifying those who are cured and those who are not. But the advantage there is with this precision medicine is if you are a person who has a particular disease and say if it's life they can match you to find out if you match someone else and normally you'll match more than one other person. They can yeah. look to see if, if that person's had the illnesses that you've got and were cured. And if they do, then, then that's the cures you get. And that will increase the likelihood that you will be cured or whatever it is that you have. So precision medicine, it's still at a very early stage. It, its potential is very promising and it's going to, um, given time, revolutionize medicine and how long that will take to happen is hard to say because you know uh, getting doctors to use these systems is itself uh, going to be a challenge because some of them uh, take to it like a duck to water where there's others you know that, that's not what you call overly keen on using that type of technology. That's right. I didn't know that it, there was a, a term for that. That is so interesting. And where do you see the current, I guess, state, the current state and the current challenges of precision medicine? Do you see it in, in people sharing their data? Are there, I assume that there are privacy concerns. How is that developing to help us all improve in that area? Because we, we would all benefit. We would. I know about IBM are leading the charge in the space, but they may not be the only, only major player who are doing that. There may be other players in the space as well, but there are privacy, legal privacy and uh, issues with 
patient's records, which have to be observed, you know, with the uh, European privacy legislation. Was it the GDPR? I forgot what it's called, which is going to probably create more problems than it might solve with some of these uh, issues, you know, because I know um, some of the leading lights in the data science field, like Pedros Domingos is one of them. He's uh, you know, a professor at University of Washington in Seattle. He's written uh, blogs, the concerns he has about some of this legislation, but assuming, you know, I'm an optimist that whatever privacy and legal obstacles are there, I have no doubt once the legislators see that this will confer more benefits and it will create difficulties, that they will probably put in place the right legislation to enable these records to be put together and for the data to be shared only with those who have a... uh, need to know. By that I mean it won't be open slaver when anyone can look at someone's record. It'd have to be another practitioner. That practitioner would have to have permission of that patient to do it. But there's no one really, uh, other than say IBM and some of the bigger players in spaces, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know of any organisation at a professional level that is uh, sort of taking this up as a uh, cause to pursue. I, it's a good question because if I was working in a university, I'd be uh, doing my level best to encourage major hospitals across Australia, I'm talking about the big ones, to at least get them on board, to get agreement amongst them about how these records should, you know, the data for the records could be captured and how that data then can be stored in a way that's safe, secure, going to uh, prevent hackers getting in. And but also can be shared with the right people at the right time. That would be something I would be pursuing, but I don't know of anyone that's doing that at this point in time. But I say that not knowing fully who's in the space and uh, what they may be doing. So you have to say, take a grain of salt what I'm saying. I may be doing the medical profession and also the um, universities. And for that major, the major vendors are a disservice in the sense that they are doing a lot, but it's not known to the public at this point in time. Yeah, hopefully, but that would be fantastic to start to bring in that, that amount of data and putting it into the doctor's hands. I would be all for it. And I wanted to ask you more about your days of researching into decision support. Tell me yeah, a bit more about that. Yeah, well, it was back in the days uh, when we don't have computers like we got today, which are much more sophisticated and capable than what we had back in, say, the late 80s and early 90s, when they were uh, very much um, fairly rude and crude by today's standards. But back then, and what we were trying to do was to provide computerized support to commanders and their staff, either in the field or when they're in barracks, by that I mean they're in a more stationary type location, to assist them to make decisions about operations and Back in those days, you know, we were um, trying to automate what was otherwise manual things that were done, manual tasks that were performed, and to give them uh, automated support to enable a lot of those manual tasks to be done much more quickly in a much more systematic and methodical manner. And unless you have worked in that environment and see what goes on, it's very hard to explain to others, but it's a very um, systematic, methodical process that's followed in the way that a commander and the staff that support the commander reach decisions about what they're going to do. It's not something they just look at a map and, you know, sort of scratch their head and say, we're going to do X as distinct from Y. It's a much more detailed process than that. And so I was very interested in the thought processes that would go on in people's heads to reach decisions. But what I've done 
done since then and it's been done on a much more sort of um, haphazard sort of basis because I haven't focused on this around the clock. It's sort of been a bit here, a bit there and then it could go for a period of time when nothing is done but I've still continued to look at how people solve problems and draw on the conclusion there's probably three different ways that people do it even though it's a continuum rather than a, a categorical sort of process. Mm-hmm. By categorical, you're not, by that I mean you, it's not one where you're in one, you're one type of thinker versus another type of thinker. Everyone sort of moves up and down this continuum, but people tend to be biased towards one way of doing it rather than multiple ways of doing it. And that continuum basically is that you get people who are very systematic thinkers who basically look at all possible options, weigh and compare those options and draw a conclusion as to which option is the best one to use. And that's the way it's taught in the armed services to do it in the sense that you've got to look at a situation, identify options and then work through a process to work out which option is the best one to use. And I've simplified it because it's much more complicated in the way I've just described, but mm-hmm. I want to keep it simple. But what also we know from this work that's been done by, um, it's called naturalistic um, decision making. It's just a buzzword they use, but basically once people reach a certain level of competence, they don't use that multiple option approach. What they tend to do is look at a problem and because of their knowledge, they can usually identify either a solution that they know from past experience will work or alternatively, they can look at the, what I call the configuration of the problem. And by the configuration, I mean the way that, you know, what are the characteristics that sort of describe that problem or define that problem and they can then from that work out a solution that's likely to work. They're not plucking a solution off the shelf that's worked previously. They're basically allowing the situation they're facing to dictate a solution to them. I know I may not be describing that very well, but what I'm saying is some people can just look at a situation and say it's truth. I think this is the solution will work here just based on what I'm seeing about this particular issue. So they either use what they know has worked in the past or they're smart enough to work out quickly what will work in this situation. But mm-hmm. when they really become super experts, they can tell at a glance what will work in the sense they become very intuitive. I know for a fact, having examined some historical people, figures, I mean people who have um, got very high reputations and I've read anecdotes about them, how they could look at a map and tell at a glance what the solution was and I ran this past a medical friend of mine who I've known for many years and he doesn't practice anymore in medicine but he said that when he started off he started off with this multiple option approach then he went to the single option approach and in the end he could walk into a consultant's medical surgery I mean the consultant's type room he could look at the patients and he said within seconds he knew what it was they were there for he may have been exaggerating slightly but I have no doubt it's probably true based on many years experience he could tell fairly quickly what patients were there for and what he um, was required to do. So um, that's something that over years I sort of drew the conclusions about. But where I've mainly been focused is not so much on that. It's more on what are the different styles of um, people's thinking, the cognitive style side. And for the last so many years, and it's more like two decades at least, I've been looking at the different styles of thinkers. And as recently as today, I was um, sending something off to my boss about that because I've found that originally I was coming up with some fairly um, a small number of categories, but since then, then it's mushroomed into a much more detailed schemata, if I can use that word, or schematic uh-huh. if you want to, about different styles of thinking and how it predisposes people to be suitable for 
certain types of issues. And I'll give you one that I'm currently working on. Yeah. I'm studying this military commander because of, you know, I still haven't lost interest in what I did in the armed services or the defense forces, it's called, was that he was brilliant at execution. By execution, I mean getting the job done. And he was a very unusual individual. He was completely task focused. There was nothing people's feelings and thoughts never entered his, his mind. He had no time or consideration for what people thought or their concerns or their needs and expectations. He was completely, utterly ruthless. He sat hmm. people, didn't meet his exacting standards, and he had a long history track record of um, sacking people. And he was ruthless about it, completely, utterly ruthless. There was no beg your pardon. But he had very strong powers of analysis he was what's called a practical type of person. And by practical, I don't mean someone who was good at woodwork and metalwork or, say, cooking and uh, sewing, but just that he always came up with solutions that would work in a military situation. And he was involved in some operations that were extremely difficult, extremely complicated, required very detailed planning and organization for them to achieve an outcome. And he excelled at it, absolutely excelled at it. He he was someone who was considered the best general produced by his particular country, which was Canada. Yes. And he always got an outcome. And he got an outcome because of his powers of analysis and the fact he was so ruthless in pursuing the outcome he wanted to achieve. And, and as I said, anyone that didn't measure up, they were out, they were gone. I've never seen someone as ruthless as he was. He had a particular style. He was what I called analytical practical. Analytical in the sense he had brilliant powers of logical analysis and practical in the sense he came up with solutions that would work. They weren't theoretical, what do you call it, academic ones. They were ones that fitted the problem that was evident and he was so good at implementing those intricate complicated solutions that he came up with and he also was able to achieve results with forces that were inferior in size to those of the opposing enemy that's how good he was and this is a true story I'm not making any of this up but he had this particular style of thinking and what you call acting by that acting I mean what he didn't practice he wasn't unique there were others who had the same uh, style but they weren't quite they were, they were very good I don't want to give the impression they were inferior, but they just weren't quite as exacting and ruthless as he was, but still very demanding, just not quite in the same league. Yes. And can you tell me a bit more about this analytical, practical mindset? I find that fascinating, actually. And I think that it's something that I would like to see more of in data science, that balance between the analytical and the practical. And also, like in another super important element in, in what you just told us, is the disciplined execution of a practical plan to get an outcome. But in the analytical, practical mindset, what do you think are some ways to develop that to strengthen that muscle in people? Yeah, it's a good one because these people I've studied, and I'm talking about multiple subjects here, not a single subject, because uh -huh. I've looked at many of them. The number has been in excess of 100, but a detailed profiling of these individuals. They had it as a gift, and by a gift, I mean it was just something that they, you know, whether it was nature or nurture or both, I won't argue, because it's probably a bit of both in practice, but they, you know, I'll go back a step. Everyone has gifts, as I've found from my many years of research in this space, and we all differ in what our gifts are. And the people I've described had this as a gift. In other words, they were, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, they were born with it. And through training, education training and on-the-job experience, those gifts were honed and 
polished and became quite, what do you call it, sharp and, and razor blade sharp, in fact, where they could apply it and apply it with a great deal of skill and uh, professionalism. It was really on the nurture side was all that development, you know, the education training and so on that you call it developed to a high level, that gift that they, they possessed. If I use another example so you understand where I'm coming, if I take a fellow named Montgomery, Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, Montgomery had the same style as this general I described, was a general by the name of Guy Simmons. Montgomery was responsible for Simmons' ascension by that meant his promotion through the ranks to become a three-star general, as we call it these days. Montgomery was sort of like his mentor, his protector because there was a lot of people jealous and uh, quite resentful towards Simmons. They saw him as a, a threat to them, and they also found him difficult to work with because he was so huh. ruthless. But that's another story which I won't go into. Uh, Montgomery was the same. He was this methodical, systematic thinker. He was the master of what they call the set-piece battle. That is a battle where you have to break in and uh, defeat an enemy in, in terms of their defences using you know very well-planned and executed operations. And Montgomery excelled at that. He was brilliant at it. And Montgomery had a ruthless streak as well, but not quite to the same degree that Simmons had it. He too came up with solutions that soldiers could understand. You know, the soldiers were the lowest common denominator. By that I mean ones that had poor education, they could barely write, and you had to explain to them what their role was. And Montgomery just excelled at practical ability to explain to the lowest of the low what they had to do. And Montgomery also excelled at very executing very complicated details and difficult operations. He again was brilliant at that and he and as I said Simmons they were just two chips off the same block but again it was a muscle they both born with. It wasn't something you could necessarily uh, develop if you haven't got that gift in the first place. I'm not saying it can't be done I just haven't seen it done with others that weren't so fortunately blessed as those two. So I think it's horses for courses to be honest and it's identifying what people have got a gift for and then giving them the right experiences, whether it be formal learning or otherwise, to bring to a sharp sort of focus those gifts they possess so that they can use them in the best possible way to achieve comes that's going to benefit everyone, you know, the organisation themselves in particular. So I see it as being a talent identification exercise and what's going on in Alex today with talent identification, that too has gone forward many leaps and bounds and there's a company called High Metrics, I think it's called, which is using uh -huh. gaming approaches and machine learning to identify people's aptitudes, basically. By games, I mean business games, getting people to posing quite difficult problems to them, seeing how they go about solving them, what their risk-taking appetite is like, um, how they organize themselves, how they organize others, what their leadership's like, their mental sort of abilities, you know, IQ by another name, how they apply that. And they also um, use robotic interviews where the robot's doing the interview rather than a human, and they are filming the responses people to the questions, but they're filming not only what they say and analyzing what they say using natural language processing, they're also filming their nonverbal behavior, you know, their body language, yeah. matching that as well against known cases that are successful in the positions that people are applying for, picking those who best match known cases that have succeeded in whatever position is that's now vacant. And in my opinion, I'm only speaking as an outsider, I haven't seen the hard evidence, but in my opinion, that approach is going to revolutionize the way staff are selected and placed in the future. It'll yes. all be done by machines. They'll use a similar approach to what Pymetrics is using. 
humans will be involved, but they'll be involved at the end of it where they see the shortlist candidates and then have to mm. select from the shortlist who they're willing to put into the, the vacancy that's there. But this is going on as we speak. I mean, it's not new. It's already happening. It just hasn't permeated or what do you call it, become more widespread. I'm very interested in how you use that to identify the different cognitive styles of uh, individuals, uh, whether they're... Um, analytical practical types, whether or not they're analytical strategic in their thinking. Analytical strategic means they're focused on how to win a war rather than win a battle. They've got an analytical relationship approach. That is, they're very good at analyzing interpersonal situations. They're very good at working with people, getting people on side, smoothing over differences, getting people agreed to the way tasks will be done, that sort of thing. There's a whole laundry list of different types. And if you wish, I'll send you what I sent to my boss today. There's nothing classified or secret. Yes. Yes, please. That would be great. I've become a hyper-specialist. If you haven't worked it out, I started out being a generalist and then started to specialize and then became more narrowly specialized over time. And that happens with age and what you do. Not everyone wants to hyper-specialize like I have, but I have. And uh, I've... um, it's just because there's certain things that have appealed to me and, and I've just pursued those and I've done it because I've got a great deal of satisfaction out of doing that sort of work. And what are the areas that you hyper-specialized in? I hyper-specialized in uh, certain statistical methods, how you identify class structure and clusters in data, discovery learning side. That's what I sort of was doing back in my PhD days. And then I've, uh, because of my having done all that work in the decision support area, I've been very interested in how people solve problems and reach decisions. I've, and I've focused in, as I've said, on what are their styles? How do they go about it? Not how smart are they or what particular problem-solving mode do they use, but more what characteristic ways do they go about it in terms of are they analytical, are they intuitive, do they focus on the getting the job done type approach or are they a thinker, someone that's coming up with brilliant ideas but don't go the extra step and uh, implement those ideas, others have to implement them for them, are they a relationship type person, they, do they work through people, are they more um, say, solitary type people who work on their own or work through a small team because I work through a small team. And we all differ in these approaches, you know. It's not as though there's one right way. There isn't. There's multiple ways of doing these things, but it's knowing how you do it, what your aptitude is, is to to ensure that your aptitude is used, how it's going to provide the greatest benefit. So I I use these statistical methods to identify these, see if I can find from a data point of view these styles within the data because I'm data-driven rather than theory-driven. I'm driven by what the data reveals rather than coming up with some sort of theoretical model. Then I'd see if the data supports that model. I'm very much the reverse. I'll let the data drive what I what's there, and then because I know then that I'm not coming up with something that may not exist. I know, I know there's evidence support what I'm describing. It's a bit different from the traditional scientific approach, but as a data scientist, I uh, I'm always been data driven rather than theory or hypothesis driven. Thank you. I do want to be respectful of your time. I'm not going to keep you too much longer. I did want to ask you a couple of the listener questions. One of them is, what do you see as the current challenges in data science? Yeah, I see two, and I have presented on this in the past at various conferences. I'm not saying anything that's new or unique, and others may have also said the same things. But the two challenges I see is one is that all our methods that we've got available today, bar a few, are really designed for low-dimensional dense data. By that I mean the data that doesn't have too many columns and uh, and there's not much way of missing data or sparsity with the data. Whereas we're rendering the world of high-dimensional sparse data where there's lots of gaps in the data. And 
our current cropper techniques, which evolved over more than a century, are well designed and work well when the data is low dimensional and it's dense, but they struggle. Sometimes don't work when the data starts to become, you're dealing with many dimensions rather than a few and you're, again, you're facing this problem with sparsity. I know the neural net world with um, convolutional neural nets, recurrent neural nets are making headway in the space with because both of those seem to be solutions to how we manage high dimensional sparse data but and I'm not criticizing any of that that's good stuff that's being done but I'm sort of where I am some of the work I'm doing is looking for statistical ways of doing it rather than machine learning machine learning ways of doing it I would study using examples where you train an algorithm or routine to identify patterns I'm looking for or see if we can statistically identify those patterns rather than using you know traditional machine learning so I'm probably talking statistical learning as distinct from machine learning if that distinction makes sense and the reason I'm doing that is that machine learning approach with neural nets is a hit and miss sphere in that neural nets hard to train hard to converge lots of examples to use to get them to identify patterns whereas with a statistical approach you can get results almost within a very short space of time because you are training them in a sense but the training is brief and abrupt rather than long and protracted where you're using formula to tease out the patterns in the data and I'm talking sparse high dimensional data here rather than rather than low dimensional dense data so I've been looking for solutions in that space and I am working on a few at present to try and do that but I'm looking at it from a discovery learning point of view not a supervised learning sort of approach by that I mean you know, developing predictive or classification models I'm more looking for approaches which will identify you know it's basically a subspacing approach where you're carving up a data set regardless of how big it is into um, something that looks like um, say a slice cake where you slice a cake up into different slices and some parts have got lots of dense data there other parts have got sparse data but you're also trying to do it in such a way that the subspaces are homogeneous by them I mean they've got the same type of cases within each subspace rather than different types of cases within the same subspace so that's one I'm looking at at present the other one which is a I think is a major issue is that data science is in my opinion is, is still a cottage industry much like what computer science is a cottage industry, even though computer science scientists may beg to differ. And by that I mean we're still using approaches which lack scale and speed, basically. And for us to cope with the data explosion that's occurring in the world, which is only going to get worse as we go forward because of the Internet of Things and other developments similar to that, is that we've got to come up with industrialised ways of or industrialised solutions to process data in the future. We can still come up, use science, scientific ways of coming up with those solutions, but when we implement them, I think we've got to go to an engineering approach to come up with really robust, scalable and fast ways of crunching through the data. So I see a role for data engineers, machine learning engineers to do the industrialization type part of the process while we still have our data scientists and the like coming up with innovative solutions to enable that to happen. We're dismissing that industrialization. You know, one approach I see being a possibility which I believe could occur in the USA probably before it happens here is moving to what's called data as a service and analytics as a service and by that I mean instead of an organization crunching the data whether it be modeling or mining type work that's done in a factory type environment where right. you send it out to a foundry or factory and it's done there and they provide the results back to you because they can get the scale and they can get the speed and the organization that was providing the data they too can still come up with the solutions of how it's done but it's done in a factory we're talking about the industrial revolution where we have industrial 
industrial revolution with um, analytics to use as an expression we set up these factories these foundries that can do the real large crunching of numbers to get the results we need in a timely manner so my idea is probably a bit radical and a bit revolutionary there but that to me is where we've got to head in the future or else I just think I can't see us coping with the volumes of data we've got to manage I think the volumes are just simply going to drown us overwhelm us I think they're just going to leave us grasping for air I think that is so true. <laughs> we definitely need to be fixing that productionization issue and being able to do things at scale for us to go to the next level as an industry. Yeah, well, if I was an IBM or a Microsoft, uh, HP, etc., I'd, I'd be looking at this industrialization, Alex, as uh, where to head because some of these conglomerates are struggling at present. I reckon this is where their next major line of business is going to lie in terms of where they're going to make their future profits. That's my personal view, but they may again beg to differ. I think you might be right there, though. That is definitely a big area that is very necessary. That is excellent. And this has been super interesting and very, very enjoyable. I only have one last question for you. And that is, what would be a piece of advice or a takeaway that you would like to leave the listeners with? Something to consider through their their careers or something that they should focus on? What What is something, a piece of advice that you would give to data scientists and up and coming data science leaders? The main thing I tell uh, the younger generation is that they're in a field that's going gangbusters and they've got very promising careers in front of them and that they can pick and choose where they can, uh, they wish to work at present and won't stay that way forever, of course. But I guess if I had to uh, give them a takeaway, you know, just a general one, is do what gives you passion. Um, because if you do that, then you'll get a great deal of enjoyment, a great deal of satisfaction, a, a great deal of sense of fulfillment from what you do in the sense that you'll feel as if you're, you're doing things that making your life worthwhile and enjoyable and people who are happy are the ones who um, the less at least number of problems in life in the sense that if they're happy, then they tend to have happy, happy marriages and happy kids and, and the like. I know that's a gross oversimplification, but that's just sort of something I've learned uh, looking back over my own life. Like I said, do what gives you passion. That is outstanding. And I think that is fantastic advice and a great note to end on. Work, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your interesting insights and your mind opening stories. You had to keep saying and keep reminding, you know, to say like, these are true stories. <laughs> you said, you said, you're like, I'm not making this up. This is true because every story was just eye opening and mind blowing. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a real, real pleasure. And thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. DataSource Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. DataSource is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information.
Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science, and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.